Welcome back everyone to Books for Boredom. Um, I just want to say one little thing before I get into the second to the last episode. Well, this is the second to the last episode um, for this book. I have about 100 pages left and I read about 50 each week. So yeah, we're getting to the very, very end of the book. And who knows, maybe I'll, I'll upload both of these um, kind of close together so that I can finish it and I'll move on to the next book. Um, but I also just want to apologize in advance because I am a little sick. <laughs> I'm a little congested. I don't know if you can tell, probably not, but um, I could definitely tell. So I was trying to wait until I at least I got a little better. Um, but I really want to finish this book. I'm like really interested in it. Um, so just just a fair warning. I hope you don't hear any like gross things coming from my nose, but hopefully I'll edit those out. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I will, uh, get started and I will see you guys next week with the last episode of The Good Girl. Colin, before. It's 2am when I'm woken up by her scream. I stand from the chair and see her pointing across the pitch black room at something that isn't there. Mia, I say. But I can't get her eyes off it. Mia, I snap again. My voice is firm. I must look at the spot five times because she's scaring the shit out of me. Her eyes, filled with tears, are locked in place on something. I reach for the light and turn it on, only to reassure myself that we're alone. Then I drop to my knees before the couch. I take her head into my hands and force her to look at me. Mia, I say, and she snaps out of it. She tells me that there was a man at the door with a machete and a red bandana tied around his head. She's hysterical, delirious. She can describe everything about him down to a hole in the right thigh of his jeans. A black man with a cigarette pinched between his lips. But what concerns me the most is the heat coming off her face when I press my hands to it. The glazed over look of her eyes when she finally looks at me and her head drops to my shoulder and she begins to cry. I run the water in the bathtub and let it fill to the top. I have no medicine. I have nothing to bring the temperature down. It's the first time I'm grateful that the water refuses to warm beyond lukewarm. Warm enough to keep her from becoming hypothermic, cool enough that she doesn't begin to seize. I help her rise to her feet. She leans on me and I carry the weight of her into the bathroom. She sits on the toilet seat as I peel the socks off her feet. She flinches when her bare feet touch the bitter tile. No, she begs. It'll be okay, I coax. It's a lie. I turn off the water and say that I'll give her privacy, but she reaches out and clenches my hand. She says to me, don't go. I watch as a convulsing hand attempts to undo the button of her khaki pants. She becomes weak and reaches for the sink to steady herself before she can finish. I step forward and unclasp the button. I lower her onto the toilet seat and pull her pants to the ground. I peel a pair of long johns from her legs and throw a sweatshirt over her head. She's crying as she sinks into the bathtub. She lets the water rise up to her knees as she pulls them into her chest. She drops her head to them and her hair falls one way, the last few inches swimming in the water. I kneel beside the bathtub. With my hands, I cup the water and drop it where it doesn't reach. I soak a washcloth, drape it over the back of her neck. She doesn't stop shaking. I try not to look at her. I try not to look below the eyes as she begs me to keep talking, anything to avoid the freezing cold. I try not to imagine the things I can't see. I try not to think about the color of her pale skin or the curvature of her spine. I try not to stare at her hair, 
bobbing on the surface of the bath. I tell her about a lady who lives down the hall from me, the 70-year-old lady who always manages to lock herself out of her apartment when she takes the trash to the chute down the hall. I tell her how my mother cut my father out of our early family photos, all their wedding photos she stuck in the shredder. She let me keep one photo of him, but after we stopped talking, I used it for target practice. I tell her that as a kid, I wanted to play in the NFL, wide receiver, just like Tommy Waddle. I tell her that I can foxtrot because my mother taught me, but it isn't the kind of thing I'd ever let anyone see. On the Sundays when she's having a good day, she plays Frank Sinatra on the radio and we limp around the room. These days I'm better than her by a long shot. She learned it from her own parents. There was nothing better to do growing up when times were tough, really tough. She always told me I knew nothing about being poor, even on those nights that I snuggled up with a sleeping bag in the back seat of our car. I tell her that if it were up to me, I'd live somewhere like this, in the middle of God knows where. The city isn't for me. All those damn people. What I don't tell her is how beautiful she looked that first night. How I watched her sitting alone at the bar, masked by the faded lights and cigarette smoke. I watched her longer than I needed to for the pure pleasure of it. I don't tell her how the candle made her face glow, how the photograph I was given didn't do her justice. I didn't tell her any of it. I don't tell her the way she makes me feel when she looks at me, or how I hear her voice at night in my dreams, forgiving me. I don't tell her I'm sorry, though I am. I don't tell her that I think she's beautiful, even when I see her look in a mirror and hate the image she sees. She tires from shaking. I can see her eyes close as she begins to fall asleep. I press a hand to her forehead and I convince myself the fever has gone down. I wake her, and then I help her stand in the bath. I wrap a rough towel around her and help her step over the side of the tub. I help her dress into the warmest clothes I can find and then I towel dry the ends of her hair. She lies on the couch before the fire. It's beginning to die, so I lay a branch across the logs. Before I can cover her with a blanket, she's asleep, but she continues to hack. I sit beside her and will myself not to sleep. I watch the rise and fall of her chest so I know that she's alive. There's a doctor in Grand Marais. I tell her we need to go. She tries to object. We can't, she says, but I tell her we need to. I remind her that her name is Chloe. I do everything I can to disguise us. I tell her to pull her hair back, which she never does. On the way, I run into a grocery store for a pair of reading glasses. I tell her to put them on. Not perfect, but it'll have to do. I wear my socks hat. I tell her we're paying in cash, no insurance. I tell her not to talk more than she has to. Let me do the talking. All we need is a prescription. I drive around Grand Marais for a good 30 minutes before deciding on a doctor. I do this by their names. Kenneth Levine sounds too formal. Bastard probably falls asleep every night to the news. There's a clinic, but I keep driving. Too many people. There's a dentist, an OBGYN. I decide on some broad named Kayla Lee, a family practitioner with an empty parking lot. Her little sports car is parked up back. Not very practical for the snow on the ground. I tell Mia we don't want the best doctor in town, just one who knows how to write a prescription. I help her cross the parking lot. Be careful, I say. There's a layer of ice on the ground. We skate across it to the door. She can't get rid of the damn cough, though she lied and said she was feeling better. The office is on the second floor, above a copy shop. We enter and head straight up the narrow stairway. She says that it's heaven to be somewhere warm. Heaven. I wonder if she really believes in that kind of shit. 
there's a lady sitting behind the desk, this woman who's humming Christmas crap. I usher me into a seat. She buries her nose into a tissue and blows. The receptionist looks up. Poor thing, she says. I get the paperwork from her and sit down in the bariatric chair. I watch Mia fill out the forms. She manages to remember Chloe, but when she comes to last name, her hand becomes still. Why don't I do it for you, I ask. I slide the pen from her hand. She watches me write Romaine. I make up an address. I leave the insurance information blank. I bring the paperwork up front and tell the lady we'll be paying cash. Then I sit beside her and ask if she's okay. I take her by the hand. My fingers slip between hers and I squeeze lightly and say to her, everything's going to be okay. She thinks it's all a ruse for the receptionist's benefit, but what she doesn't know is that I suck at acting. The lady leads us to a back room and takes Mia's vitals. The room's small and there's an animal mural painted across the walls. Low blood pressure, the lady says. Increased respiration rate and pulse. Temperature of 104. Poor thing, she says again. She says the doctor will be in soon. I don't know how long we wait. She sits on the edge of the table, staring at whimsical lions and tigers while I pace back and forth across the room. I want to get the hell out of here. I say it at least three times. Dr. Kayla Lee knocks and then lets herself in. She's chipper. Brunette. Not blonde, as I expected. A blonde bimbo was what we were hoping for. The doctor's loud and she talks to Mia like she's three. She sits on a swivel stool and pulls it close to Mia. Mia tries to clear her throat. She coughs. She's a fucking mess. But maybe feeling like shit helps disguise the fact that she's scared half to death. The doctor asks us if she's seen us before. Mia can't come up with the words, so I step in. I'm surprisingly calm. No, I say. New patients. So what's going on? She peeks down at the file. Chloe? Mia's growing exhausted from this trip. She can't hold the doctor's stare. I'm certain the doctor smells the B.O. on both our clothes, clothes we've worn almost every day so that we no longer smell the stink. She's hacking up a lung. There's a barking cough that sounds like a dozen terriers fighting inside her. Her voice is hoarse. It threatens to disappear. She's been coughing like this for about four days, I say. Fever? Chills, I told her we needed to get in to see you Friday afternoon, but she said no, it was only a cold. Fatigue? Mia nods. I tell her that Mia is lethargic, that she passed out at home. She writes this down in her notes. Any vomiting? No. Diarrhea? No. Let me take a look, the doctor says, and quickly shines a light in Mia's eyes, up her nose, into her ears. She tells her to say, ah, and feels her glands, and then the stethoscope finds its way to Mia's lungs. Take a deep breath for me, Dr. Lee says. Behind her, I continue to pace. She moves the stethoscope around Mia's back and chest. She has her lie down, then sit up again as she taps on the chest and listens. My suspicion is pneumonia. Do you smoke? No. History of asthma? No. I take in the artwork. A polka dot giraffe? A lion whose mane looks like one of those damn cones dogs wear when they can't stop licking themselves? A baby blue elephant that looks like it just crawled out of the delivery ward. I hear a lot of junk in your lungs, in layman's terms. Pneumonia is inflammation of the lungs caused by an infection. Fluid blocks and narrows your airways. What starts as a cold might decide to settle in your lungs for whatever reason, and what you get is this, she says, sweeping her hand across Mia's perimeters. The doctor reeks of perfume. She doesn't shut up when Mia's hacking, though we all know she hears. We treat it with antibiotics, she continues. She lists the possibilities. Just give us a prescription. But first, I'd like to confirm with a chest X. The color fades from Mia's face, as if there was any there to begin with. There's no way we're stepping foot into a hospital. I appreciate your diligence, I interrupt. 
I step forward, close enough to touch the doctor. I'm bigger than both of them, but I don't use my size to change her mind. We'd run into dozens of people in a hospital. Maybe more. I plaster a fucking smile on my face and confess that I'm between jobs. We're uninsured, we can't afford the two or three hundred dollars that a chest x-ray would cost us, and then Mia starts coughing until we all think she might puke. The doctor fills a little plastic cup with water and hands it to her, and then she stands back to watch her patient gasp for air. Okay, she says. She writes out the damn prescription and leaves the room. We pass her in the hall on the way out. She's bent over a countertop writing notes and Chloe remains file. Her smock hangs low to the top of leather cowboy boots. There's an ugly dress beneath. Her stethoscope is wrapped around her neck. We're almost to the door when she stops and says, Are you sure I haven't seen you before? You just look so darn familiar. But she isn't looking at Mia. She's looking at me. No, I say dismissively. No need to be kind. I got what I need. We make a follow-up appointment for Chloe Romaine, one she'll never keep. Thank you for your help, Mia says as I gently shove her out the door. In the parking lot, I tell her that we did good. We have the prescription, and that's all we need. We swing by a pharmacy on the way back to the cabin. Mia waits in the truck while I run inside, grateful to find a 16-year-old pothead working in the register and the pharmacist tucked in back, never raising his head. I give Mia a pill before we pull out of the parking lot, and I watch out of the corner of my eye as she falls asleep on the way home. I slip out of my coat and lay it over her so she doesn't get cold. Gabe. Before. I spent many days visiting Catherine Thatcher in her new abode. The first time I showed up, I said I was her son. The receptionist said to me, Oh, thank goodness, she talks about you all the time, and led me to the woman's room. I could tell in her eyes that she was disappointed to see me, but so relieved to have company she didn't bother to tell them I'd lied. She's well medicated now and can function minimally on her own. Mrs. Thatcher shares a room with an 82-year-old woman on hospice care. It's only a matter of time before she dies. She's so doped up on morphine she doesn't have a damn clue where she is, and she's certain Mrs. Thatcher is a lady named Rory McGuire. No one comes to visit the woman. No one comes to visit Mrs. Thatcher but me. Turns out Mrs. Thatcher likes true crime novels. I go to the bookstore and pick up every bestseller I can find. I sit in on the edge of her bed and read them to her. I suck at reading aloud. I suck at reading at all. I don't think I quite mastered that in the first grade. Turns out I like true crime novels as well. I sneak chicken nuggets into her room. As often as we can, we share a ten-piece and a large fry. I bring an old CD player of mine and borrow Christmas CDs from the library. She says that it doesn't feel like Christmas in the nursing home. She can see the snow out the window, but inside everything feels the same. When I leave at night, I turn on music so she doesn't have to listen to her roommate's troubled breathing. The days off I don't spend with Catherine Thatcher, I spend with Eve. I find some asinine reason to repeatedly show up at her door. As December sets in and winter descends upon us, a fog comes over her. She chalks it up to seasonal affective disorder, whatever the hell that is. I can see that she's tired all the time. She's sad. She sits and stares out the window at the falling snow. I try and devise one small scrap of information, real or not, about the case that will give the impression I'm not at a dead end. I teach her how to make my mom's lasagna. I'm not trying to turn her into a chef, I'm just not sure there's any other way to make her eat. She says her husband's coming home less and less. He works even later, sometimes until 10 or 11 at night. Last night he didn't come home. He claims to have worked all night catching up on motions, something that Eva tests he's never ever done. What do you think, I ask. 
He looks tired this morning. He passed through to change his clothes. I'm trying to hone my great detective skills to figure out why she doesn't leave her husband. So far, no luck. So he was working, I conclude. Fat chance in hell he was working. But if it makes Eve feel better, so be it. We never allude to the kiss. But every time I see her, I imagine Eve's lips pressed to mine. When I close my eyes, I taste her and smell everything from her hand soap to her perfume. She calls me Gabe and I call her Eve. We stand closer than we used to. Now when she opens the door, there's a flicker of happiness and not just a letdown because I'm not the long-lost daughter. There's a flicker of happiness for me. Eve begs me to bring her to the nursing home, but I know it would be more than she can handle. She wants to talk to Mrs. Thatcher, mother to mother. She thinks there's something Mrs. Thatcher might tell her that she wouldn't tell me, but still I tell her no. She asks what Catherine's like, and I tell her that she's a strong woman and defiant. Eve tells me she used to be strong. Fine china and hot couture have made her weak. As soon as Mrs. Thatcher is fully stabilized, she'll go to live with a sister nearby. A woman who apparently hasn't so much as turned on the evening news for the past few months. I phoned her the other day at Catherine's request. She had no idea her nephew had gone AWOL. Had never heard a word about the search for me at Dennett. I've been assigned to other cases. A fire in an apartment building that's possible arson. Complaints from numerous teeny boppers against a high school teacher. But at night when I retire to my own apartment, I drink to help me sleep. And when I do, I fall asleep to the image of Mia Dennett on video surveillance, being shepherded from an elevator by the abrasive Colin Thatcher. I imagine a bleak Eve crying herself to sleep, and I remind myself that I'm the only one who can stop it. I'm visiting the nursing home one snowy Tuesday afternoon when Catherine Thatcher turns to me and asks about her neighbor, Ruth Baker. Does Ruthie know I'm here? She asks, and I shrug and say that I don't know. I've never heard of this Ruth, aka Ruthie, Baker, but she tells me how Ruthie checks on her every week during the week when Colin can't be there. She says that she collects the mail every day and brings it with her to Mrs. Thatcher's home. I envision the mail in the mailbox nearly tumbling to the ground, stuffed to the point it was impossible to close the door. There was so much mail I needed to drive to the Gary Post Office with a warrant to collect what the mailman couldn't stuff into the box. I spoke to the neighbors, but there was no Ruth or Ruthie, no Mrs. Baker. Mrs. Thatcher tells me that Ruth lives in the white Cape Cod across the street, and it's then that I remember her for sale sign out front. No one answered the door. I do my research and stumble upon an obituary from the first week of October. I pull up the death records and find that Mrs. Ruth Baker had a stroke and died at 5.18pm on October 7th. Mrs. Thatcher has no idea. Mrs. Baker was supposed to be keeping an eye on Catherine Thatcher while Colin was away. I'm guessing that wherever he is, he doesn't have a clue this 75-year-old woman he left in charge of his mother is dead. My mind reverts to the mail. I pull out the stack of mail I swiped from Mrs. Thatcher's box and collected from the post office and sorted by postmark date. Sure enough, there's a gap from Mia's disappearance until the bills and past due notices begin. About five days. I wonder who the hell is Mrs. Thatcher's missing mail. I return to the home of Ruthie Baker and knock on the door. Again, no answer, and so I track down a next of kin, a woman about my own age, Ruthie's daughter, who lives in Hammond with her husband and kids. One day I knock on her door. Can I help you? She asks, startled when I show her my badge. Is your mother Ruth Baker? I ask before I ever say my name. She says that she is. Anytime a cop shows up at your door, the first thing you wonder is, what's wrong? I forget to tell her that I'm sorry for her loss. I jump right in with only one thought on my mind, finding Mia. 
I believe her mother might have been collecting the mail from a neighbor of hers. Catherine Thatcher, I say, and a wave of guilt and embarrassment washes over the woman. She begins to apologize up and down. I know she's sorry, but I think she's also worried she might be in trouble. Mail theft is, after all, a felony, and here I am, a cop standing at her front door. It's just... It's just been so busy, she says. With all the arrangements, the funeral, and packing up her home, she saw the mail. In fact, she's walked past it about a million times every time she goes into or comes out of her mother's home, stacked on a wooden end table beside the front door. She just never got around to returning it to its rightful owner. I follow the lady in her minivan back to the street on which Catherine Thatcher lives. We pull into the drive of Ruth Baker's house and the woman runs in to retrieve the mail. I thank her and snatch it from her hand, and there, in the driveway, I scramble through the mail. Chinese takeout menus, a water bill, grocery store ads, more bills and a pudgy envelope made out to Catherine Thatcher with no return address. The handwriting's sloppy. I rip open the envelope and find, tucked inside, a crap load of cash. No note, no return address. I turn it over and over in my hands. I read the postmark. Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I toss the mail in the passenger seat of my car and speed away. Back at the station, I pull up a map online. I track the route from Chicago to Grand Marais. Sure enough, right there, I-94 heads west to St. Paul, Minneapolis, and U.S. Highway 53 heads north and then west into northern Minnesota is the Wisconsin town of Eau Claire, just about five hours shy of Grand Marais. I contact an Officer Roger something or other from northeastern Minnesota. He assures me I'm barking up the wrong tree, but he says he'll look into it nonetheless. I tell him that I'm faxing a sketch, just in case. Colin Thatcher's face has made the news only in the tri-state area. TV stations throughout Minnesota and the rest of the world don't have a clue who he is. But they will. Colin. Before. The antibiotics kick in and she starts to feel better overnight. While the cough continues to rage, the fever drops significantly. She looks alive, no longer a zombie. But as she feels better, something begins to change. I tell myself that it has to do with the antibiotic, but even I know that's not true. She's quiet. I ask if she's okay, and she says she still doesn't feel good. She doesn't want to eat. I try and convince her to take a few bites, but she sits and stares out the window. Silence fills the cabin. Uncomfortable silence, bringing us back to a place we used to be. I try to make small talk, but her only responses are one-word answers. Yes. No. I don't know. She says we're going to freeze to death. She says she hates the snow. That if she has to eat chicken soup one more time, she'll vomit. Generally, I'd get pissed. I'd tell her to shut up. I'd remind her how I saved her life. I'd tell her to eat the damn soup before I shove it down her throat. She wants nothing to do with the drawing. I ask if she wants to go outside. The day is nicer than we've seen for a while, but she says no. I go anyway, and she doesn't move an inch while I'm gone. She can't make a decision. She doesn't want the chicken soup. I know that. So for dinner, I give her the option. I rattle off the name of everything in the cabinet. She says she doesn't care. She's not hungry anyway. She says she's tired of shaking all the time. She's tired of the crap we eat, cans of clap masquerading as food. Just the scent of it makes her want to vomit. She's tired of the boredom. She's tired of having absolutely nothing to do for hours on end, day after day after unending day. She doesn't want to go for another walk in the godforsaken cold. She doesn't want to draw another picture. Her nails are a jagged mess. Her hair is greasy from the inside out, a tangle that will never come undone. 
We can't escape our own smell, though we force ourselves to bathe nearly every day in that dirty tub. I tell her that they'd send me to jail if I was ever caught. I don't know how long. Thirty years? Life? It's not about this, I tell her. But the number of years mean nothing. They're pointless. I'd never live to see them. Every criminal knows someone on the inside. I'm as good as dead inside the pen. They'd make sure of it. It isn't a threat. I'm not trying to make her feel guilty. It's just the way it is. I don't want to be here either. I spend every waking moment wondering when Dan's going to come through with the passports, how I'm going to get them without the cops finding me. The food's always sparse, the night's getting colder so that one morning we don't wake up. I know that now is the time to go. Before the food runs out. Before the money runs out. Before we freeze to death. She lets me be the one to worry. She says there's never been someone to worry about her before. I think of all the things that could go wrong. Starving. Freezing. Being found by Delmar. Being found by the police. There's danger in returning home. There's danger in staying here. I know it. She knows it. But my biggest concern now is not having her with me. Gabe. After. Believe it or not, they find the damn cat. The poor little guy was hiding out in some shed behind the cabin, freezing his little ass to the verge of death. There wasn't a thing to eat, so he was quite taken with the kibbles and bits the cops brought. But he sure as hell didn't like their cage, or so they said, and fought tooth and nail to get out of it before they fastened the lock. The feline took a turbo prop down to Minneapolis, then a commercial airliner into O'Hare. Little guy gets around more than me. I picked him up this morning and took him over to the Dennett's when, lo and behold, I find out Eve and Mia have moved out. I make the jaunt to Wrigleyville and surprise the women at 10 a.m. with a dozen donuts, cafe mochas, and malnourished tabby cats. They're both in their pajamas watching TV. I catch the door as someone's leaving so I don't have to wait to be buzzed in. I like the surprise of it. Good morning, I say when Mia opens the door. She wasn't expecting me. Eve rises from the couch and pats at her untidy hair. Gabe, she says. She pulls on her robe to make sure nothing's exposed. I attempt to leave the cat in the hall, but so help me, all it takes is a thank you from Mia in response to my I brought some donuts and coffee, and the cat goes absolutely berserk, clawing at the bars of the cage and making noises I've never heard a cat make before. So much for my grand entrance. Eve turns white. What is that noise? She asks, and so I bring the little guy in and close the door. According to research, people who live with animals have decreased anxiety and lower blood pressure. They have lower cholesterol. They're more relaxed and less stressed and are overall in better health. Unless, of course, you have a dog who pees uncontrollably whenever it wishes or eats your furniture to shreds. What are you doing with that cat? Eve asks. She's clearly at a loss and thinks I'm off my rocker. This little guy? I ask. I play dumb. I squat down and open the cage and take the cat in my arms. He claws me with his back claws. Shit. I'm watching him for a friend of mine. I hope you don't mind. Is anyone allergic to cats? I ask, setting him on the ground and standing to meet Mia in the eye. The fur ball jaunts over to her and does about a thousand figure eights around her legs. He's meowing. His insides purr. Eve laughs. She runs a hand through her hair. Looks like you have a friend, Mia, she says. The girl is muttering something under her breath, as if trying a new word on for size before she blurts it out and astounds us all. She lets that cat grope her for I don't know how long as we listen to Eve go on and on about how taken the little guy is with Mia's feet. What's that you said? I ask, stepping forward as she leans down and scoops the cat into her arms. He doesn't scratch her. They nuzzle noses and he bumps into her face with his head. 
I always told her she should get a cat, Eve continues to babble. Mia, I say. She looks at me with tears in her eyes. She knows that I know and that I did this for a reason. Canoe, she whispers to me. I said canoe. Canoe? It's his name. Whatever happened to Max or Fido? Canoe? What kind of name is that? Mia, honey, Eve comes to her side, aware for the first time that something's happening here. Whose name is Canoe? She asks. Her voice is dumbed down as if she's talking to a mentally challenged child. She's certain Mia is talking gibberish, a side effect of the ASD. Except this is the first time I've ever seen Mia say something that makes sense. Eve, I say, ever so gently prying her hand off Mia's arm. I reach into my coat pocket and pull out the facts I sent to the cops and Grand Marai and unfold it to reveal a perfectly sketched image of Little Canoe. This, I say, holding it out to her, is Canoe. Then he isn't... There was a shed, Mia saying. She doesn't look at us. Her eyes are lost on the cat. Eve takes the drawing from my hand. She knows now. She's seen the sketchbook. Every last image down to the drawing of Colin Thatcher that she told me kept her awake at night. But she'd forgotten the cat. Eve sinks into the couch. There was a shed behind the cabin. He was living in there. I found him sleeping in an old rusty canoe. I scared him the first time. I just threw open the door to have a look around and scared him half to death. He ran away out a small hole in the shed and flew like a bat out of hell through the woods. I never thought he'd come back. But he was hungry and I'd left out food. He said there was no way in hell a cat was staying with us. No way in hell. Who said that, Mia? I ask. Of course I know. I should have been the damn shrink. But our answer is unexpected. Owen, she says, and then she begins to sob, laying a hand on the wall to steady herself. Mia, honey, who's Owen? There is no Owen. The man in the cabin? That man's Colin Thatcher. Eve, I say. My self-worth is increasing by the second. I managed to do what a PhD couldn't. I got Mia placing herself in the cabin with a man named Owen and a cat named Canoe. He went by a number of aliases. Owen's probably just another one of them. Is there anything else you remember? I ask. Can you tell me anything else about him? We should call Dr. Rhodes, Eve interrupts. I know she means well. She has Mia's best interest at heart, but I can't let that happen. She reaches into her purse and I say her name. Enough has passed between us that Eve knows she can trust me. I won't let anything happen to Mia. She looks at me and I shake my head. Not now. This is getting good. He said that he hated cats, and that if he saw it in the cabin, he'd shoot it. He didn't mean it. Of course he didn't, or I wouldn't have let the cat in. Did he have a gun? Yes. Of course he did. I know he did. Were you afraid of him, Mia? Did you think he might shoot you? She's nodding. Yes. But then she stops. No. She shakes her head. I don't know. I don't think so. Well, of course you were, honey. He had a gun. He kidnapped you. Did he threaten you with a gun? Yes. She's thinking. She wakes up from a dream and tries to remember the details. She gets bits and pieces, but never the whole thing. We've all been there. In a dream, your house is a house, but it's not your house. Some lady doesn't look like your mother, but you know that she is your mother. In the daytime, it doesn't quite make as much sense as it did during the night. He held me down, outside, in the woods. He pointed the gun at me. He was so mad, he was screaming. She's shaking her head vigorously. Tears fall freely down her cheeks. It's making Eve a nervous wreck. I have to step between the women to keep Eve back. 
Why, I ask. My voice is calm. Maybe I was a shrink in a former life. It's my fault. It's all my fault. What is your fault, Mia? I tried to tell him. Tried to tell him what? He wouldn't listen. He had the gun. He kept pointing it at me. I knew if anything went wrong, he was going to kill me. He told you that? I ask. He said if anything went wrong, he would kill you. No, no, she shakes her head. She looks me right in the eye. I could see it in his eyes. She says that she was scared that day in the bar. She tried not to be, but she was scared. My mind does an about-face to the jazz bar in Uptown, the balding proprietor and fancy green candle. This is where Mia first encountered Colin Thatcher, a.k.a. Owen. From the waitress's testimony, Mia left in a hurry of her own free will. I think back to the waitress's words. Seemed to me she couldn't wait to get out of here. Doesn't sound like fear to me. And then, Mia cries, everything was going wrong. I tried to tell him. I should have just told him. But I was scared. He had the gun and I knew that if anything went wrong, he'd kill me. I tried to- Colin Thatcher, I interrupt. Owen. Owen would kill you if anything went wrong. She nods, then quickly shakes her head. Yeah, no, she's frustrated. I don't know, she splutters. What did you try to tell him? I ask instead. But her mind does a 180, and she shakes her head, frustrated. She can no longer remember what she was about to say. Most people think there are two natural responses to fear, fight or flight, but there's a third reaction to a bad situation. Freeze. Like a deer in headlights. Play dead. Mia's words, I was scared, I tried to tell him, proved just that. There was no fight or flight response. She froze. There she was, on high alert, adrenaline pumping but unable to do anything to save her life. It's all my fault, she says again. What is your fault, I ask, expecting a replay of the same conversation. But this time, she says, I tried to run away. And he caught you? She's nodding. I recall her earlier admission. Outside, in the woods, I ask. And he was mad at you for trying to run away? So he pointed the gun at you and told you that if you ever tried that again, that he would kill me. Eve gasps. She covers a gaping mouth with her hand. Of course he threatened to kill her. That's what they do. I'm sure it happens many times. What else did he say? I query. What can you remember? She's shaking her head. She comes up with nothing. Canoe, I prompt. You said he'd shoot him if he saw him in the cabin, but he didn't. You remember that the cat was in the cabin? She strokes the cat's fur. She doesn't look at me. He said he laid by me for days. He never left my side. Who didn't, I asked. He said no one had ever loved him as much in his life. No one had ever been as devoted. As who? She looks at me. Duh, her eyes say. Canoe. And that's when it hits me. If seeing the cat brought this much back to life, what memories could we exhume if we placed Mia back in the homely log cabin? I have to find the person that did this to her before I know for sure that she and Eve are safe. Colin, before. I tell her we're going for a walk. It's dark outside after 10 p.m. Now, she asks, as if we have something better to do. Now. She tries to argue, but I won't have it. Not this time. I help her into my coat and we head outside. The snow is falling lightly and the temperature hovers right around 32 degrees. The snow's light. It's perfect for a snowball fight. It brings me back to the trailer park tossing snowballs with the other trailer trash kids before Ma bought a home that wasn't mobile. She follows me down the steps. At the bottom, she stops to take it all in. 
The sky is black. The lake is lost to oblivion. It would be dark, too dark without the brilliance of the snow. She catches it in her hands and the snow collects in her hair and on her eyelashes. I stick out my tongue to taste it. The night is silent. Out here, the snow makes everything glow. It's brisk outside, not cold. One of those nights that the snow somehow makes you feel warm. She's standing at the bottom of the steps. The snow's up to her ankles. Come here, I say. We trudge through the snow to the crappy little shed out back. I pry the door open. I have to force the damn thing through the snow to get inside. It isn't easy. She helps me pull and then says, What are you looking for when we're inside? This, I say, holding up an axe. I thought I'd seen it in here before. Two months ago, she would have thought the axe was meant for her. What's that for? She asks. She isn't scared. I have a plan. You'll see. The snow must be four inches by now, maybe more. Our feet slosh in it and the legs of our pants become soaked. We walk for a while until the cabin is no longer in sight. We're on a mission, and that in itself is vitalizing. Ever cut your own Christmas tree? I ask. She looks at me like I'm nuts, like only some crazy hick would cut their own Christmas tree. But then I see that hesitation flee. She says to me, I've always wanted to cut my own Christmas tree. Her eyes light up like a child's. She says that at her home it was always fake. Real trees were messy. Her mother would never go for it. There was nothing fun about Christmas in her home. It was all for appearance's sake. The tree was decked out with all these breakable crystal ornaments. She'd get yelled at for coming within three feet of the thing. I tell her to pick it out, whichever one she wants. She points to a 60-foot fir. Try again, I say, but for a moment I stare it down and wonder if I could. I convince myself that she's having fun. She doesn't mind the cold or the way the snow gets caught in the ankle of her sock. She says that her hands are freezing. She presses them to my cheeks to feel, but I can't feel a thing. My own cheeks are numb. I tell her that as a kid, my mother and I forgot about Christmas. She dragged me to mass, but as for the presents and trees and all that shit, well, we didn't have the money, and I never wanted my mother to feel guilty about it. So I just let December 5th come and go like it was any other day. Back in school, the kids would all brag about what they'd gotten. I'd always make something up. I didn't feel sorry for myself. I wasn't the one to feel sorry for myself. I'd tell her that I never believed in Santa. Not one day in my life. What did you want? She asks. What I wanted was a dad. Someone to take care of my mother and me so I didn't have to do it myself. But what I tell her is Atari. She finds a tree. It's about five feet tall. You want to try? I ask and hand her the axe. Holding it in her hands, she laughs. It's a sound I've never heard before. She gives the tree a whack. After four or five tries, she hands me the axe. I examine the base. She's made a dent, but not much more. It's not like it's easy. I tell her to stand back as I whack the hell out of it. She's watching with the wide eyes of a five-year-old child. I'll be damned if I don't cut down this tree. The entire world is quiet. Everything is at peace. I'm sure I've never experienced a night as perfect as this before. She tells me that it's impossible to believe that somewhere out there, the world is at war. People are starving. Children are being abused. We are removed from civilization, she says. Two tiny figurines in a snow globe that some child has turned over. I picture it. Us trudging through ceramic mounds while glittery snow encircles us on our own bubble. In the distance, I'm certain I hear an owl hoot. I stop her and say, shh, and for a moment we listen. This is where the snowy owl migrates, in the winter. We're freezing to death, but he comes here to keep warm. We listen. It's quiet. She looks toward the sky and watches the clouds burst at the seams. They shower us with snow. 
The tree is heavy. We haul it in together, her in the front, me in the back. We slide it across the snow, and four or five times one or both of us slides on the snow and falls. Our hands are so cold they're hardly able to grasp the trunk of the tree. When we get to the cabin, I take the base of the tree. Moving backward, I heave it up the steps. She stands at the bottom. She pretends to help, but we both know that she does nothing. We force her through the front door and prop it against a wall. I collapse. The tree must weigh 150 pounds, sopping wet and overflowing with heavy snow. I kick off my wet shoes and gulp water right in front of the kitchen faucet. She lets her hands wander across the juvenile leaves still filled with snow. She smells the pine. It's the first time neither of us complains of being cold. Our hands are raw, our noses and cheeks red, but under layers of clothes we sweat. I stare at her, her skin alive from the cold. I go into the bathroom to clean up and change my clothes. She wipes the moisture from the floor, from under the tree and where our shoes pulled snow. I can smell the pine on my hands. I feel the sticky sap. I breathe hard, trying to catch my breath. I drop to the couch when I return. She heads into the bathroom to strip the wet clothes from her skin. She sinks into an extra pair of long johns that had been drying on the window curtain, and when she comes out, she says, No one's ever given me a tree before. I'm rekindling the fire as she passes through the room. She watches my calculating hands manipulate the wood just right, bringing the fire to life. She says that I do everything that way, with a certain expertise I pretend doesn't exist. I don't say a thing. I sit back on the couch and drape a blanket over my legs. My feet rest on a coffee table. I'm still breathing hard. What I would give for a beer, I say. She watches me sitting there for I don't know how long. I can feel her eyes on me. You too? I ask after a minute. A beer? Yeah. Yeah, she says. I remember the two of us sitting side by side drinking beer in that bar. I ask her if she remembers and she says yes. She says it seems like a million years ago, long before someone glued us to the lid of an empty baby food jar and filled our world with glitter. What time is it? She asks. My watch rests on the table beside my feet. I lean forward for a look. I say that it's 2 a.m. Are you tired? She asks. Getting there. Thank you for the tree, she says. Thank you for getting us a tree, she adds. She doesn't want to be presumptuous. I stare at the tree, leaning against the log wall. It's misshapen. Homely. But she says it's perfect. No, I say. It's for you. So you stop looking so damn sad. I promise to find lights for it. I don't know how, but I promise I'll do it. She tells me not to worry about it. It's perfect the way it is, she says. But I say I'll find the lights. She asks if I ever ride the L. I give her a dumb look. I say yes, of course I do. You can hardly get around Chicago without riding the L, the city's rapid transit system. She says that she rides the red line most of the time, flying under the city as if all that commotion above ground doesn't exist. Do you ever ride the bus? I wonder where the hell she's going with this. Sometimes. Go out, to bars, stuff like that. Sometimes, I shrug. It's not really my crowd. But you do? I guess, sometimes. You ever go by the lake? I know a guy who's got a boat at Belmont Harbor, and by that I mean some lowlife like me. Some guy working for Delmar who lives in a boat, a used cruiser he keeps gassed and docked in case he needs to run. He's got enough provisions on that boat that he could last for at least a month, traveling up the Great Lakes to Canada. This is how people like us live. Always ready to run. She nods. Belmont Harbor. Of course. She says she runs by there all the time. I could have seen you before. We might have passed on the street, ridden together on the bus, maybe waited underground for the same L. 
Millions of people live in Chicago. But maybe. I guess, maybe. What are you getting at? I'm just wondering. Her voice trails off. What? I ask. If we would have ever met. If it wasn't for this? I shake my head. I'm not trying to be an ass. It's just the truth. Probably not. You don't think so? We wouldn't have met, I say again. How do you know? We wouldn't have met. I look away, draw the blanket to my neck and lie down on my side. I ask her to turn off the light and when she hovers in the kitchen, I say, aren't you going to bed? How can you be sure? She asks instead. I don't like where this conversation's headed. What difference does it make? I ask. Would you have talked to me if we did meet? That night, would you have ever talked to me if you didn't have to? I wouldn't have been in that bar in the first place. But if you were, no, no, I wouldn't have talked to you. The rejection slaps her across the face. Oh, she crosses the room and turns off the light, but I can't leave it like that. I can't let her go to bed pissed. In the darkness, I admit, it's not what you think. She's defensive. I've hurt her feelings. What do I think? It has nothing to do with you. Of course it does. Mia. Then what? Mia. What? It has nothing to do with you. It doesn't mean anything. But it does. It does to her. She's walking toward the bedroom when I admit. The first time I saw you, you were coming out of your apartment. I was across the street, sitting on the steps of some four flat, just waiting. I'd seen a picture. I called from a payphone on the corner. You answered and I hung up. I knew you were there. I don't know how long I waited. 45 minutes, maybe an hour. I had to know what I'd gotten myself into. And then I saw you through the little windows on the side of the front door. I saw you jog down the steps with your headphones on. You opened the door and sat down outside to tie a shoe. I memorized your hair, the way it fell over your shoulders before you took these long arms and tied it back. A woman passed by with like four or five dogs. She said something to you and you smiled and I thought to myself that I'd never seen anything so... I don't know. I'd, I'd never seen anything so beautiful in my life. You went off running down the road and I waited. I watched cabs drive by and hordes of people walk home from the bus stop at the corner. It was six, maybe seven o'clock. It started to get dark. The sky was one of those dramatic fall skies. You were walking when you returned. You passed right in front of me and then jogged across the street, waving to a cab that slowed down to let you pass. I was almost certain you saw me. You dug in your shoe for a key and let yourself in, up the steps where I couldn't see you. I saw the light in your window and your silhouette. I imagined what you might be doing inside. I imagined myself in there with you. What it would be like if it didn't have to be like this. She's quiet, and then she says that she remembers the night. She says she remembers the sky, so vibrant as the sunlight was scattered by particles in the sky. She says that the sky was the color of persimmon and sangria, shades of red only God could make. She says, I remember the dogs, three black labs and a golden retriever, and the woman, all ninety-some pounds of her, swept away in a tangle of leashes. She says she remembers the call, though at the time it left her unfazed. She remembers sitting inside feeling alone because that damn boyfriend of hers was working, but more so because she was glad he was. I didn't see you, she whispers. If I did, I'd remember. She lowers herself onto the couch beside me. I open the blanket for her and she slides in. 
She presses her back into me, a vacuum seal. I can feel the rhythm of her heart pressing against me. I can feel the blood pulsing through my own ears. It's loud enough, I'm sure she hears. I wrap the blanket over her. I reach across her, find her hand, and our fingers lace together. Her grasp is reassuring. In time, mine stops to shake. I slide my bottom arm under the crevice of her neck. She falls into every gap there is until we become one. I rest my head onto a mat of dirty blonde hair, close enough that she can feel the exhalation of air on her skin, reassuring her that we're alive, though inside, we can hardly breathe. We fall into oblivion this way, into a world where nothing matters. Nothing but us. She's gone when I wake up. I no longer feel her pressed into me. Something's missing, though it wasn't that long ago that there was nothing there. I see her outside, sitting on the porch step. She's freezing her ass off. It doesn't appear that she minds. The blanket is wrapped around her shoulders and she's wearing my shoes on her feet. They're huge. She's kicked the snow off the step, though the ends of the blanket lie in it and get wet. I don't go out right away. I make coffee. I find my coat. I take my time. Hey, I offer as I step outside in my bare feet. I hand her a mug of coffee. Thought this would warm me up. Oh, she's startled. She eyes my bare feet and says, Your shoes, but before she can get them off, I stop her. I say that I don't mind. I like the look of it, her in my shoes. Her lying beside me in bed. I could get used to it. It's cold out here, I say. It's fucking cold. Maybe 20 degrees. It is? She asks. I don't answer. I'll leave you alone, I say. Seems to me someone who chooses to freeze their ass off on a day like today wants to be alone. It's not as though anything happened, but lying beside her for all those hours just for the hell of it, just to be close to her, to feel the softness of her skin and the way her chest rattled when she snored, that happened. Your feet must be freezing. I glance at my feet. They stand on a thin layer of snow and ice. They are, I say. I had turned to go inside. Thanks for the coffee. I don't know what I expect her to say, but I expect her to say something. Yep, I say, and let the door slam closed. I don't know how much time passes, enough that I start to get pissed. Pissed at myself for being pissed at her. I shouldn't care. I shouldn't give a shit. But then she appears. Her cheeks are ruby red from the cold. Her hair cascades around her. I don't want to be alone, she says. She drops the blanket at the door. I can't remember the last time anyone told me I was beautiful, she says. Beautiful doesn't do her justice. We stare at each other across the room, taking it all in, reminding ourselves to breathe. When she comes to me, she moves humbly, her hands touch, with caution. The last time I pushed her away, but the last time was different. She was a different woman. I was a different man. I run my hand the length of her hair, my hands move down her arms. They memorize her fingers and the shape of her back. She stares at me with this look I've never seen before. Not on her or any other woman. Trust. Respect. Desire. I commit to memory every freckle, every blemish on her face. I learn the shape of her ears and run a finger across the arch of her lips. She takes my hand and leads me to the bedroom. You don't have to do this, I say. God knows she's no longer my prisoner. What I want is for her to want to be here. We pause in the doorway. Her lips find their way to mine, and I hold her head in my hands. My fingers stroke her hair. 
Her arms are locked behind my back. She doesn't let go. What changes is the way we touch. There's contact, something that we used to avoid. We graze past each other when we enter a room. She runs her fingers through my hair. I let my hand linger on her back. She traces the lines on my face. We share the same bed. Our hands and fingers memorize what our eyes could not. An uneven scalp, patches of dry skin. There's nothing frivolous about that. We don't flirt. We're beyond that. We don't dredge up past relationships. We don't try and make the other jealous. We don't create pet names. We don't mention the word love. We kill time. We talk. We list all the crazy things you see in the city. The homeless pushing shopping carts around. Jesus freaks walking around with crucifixes on their backs. Pigeons. She asks my favorite color. I say I don't have one. She asks my favorite food. I let a spoonful of slop drop into a bowl. Anything other than this, I say. She asks what would have happened to her if we didn't come here. If I'd handed her over and collected my reward. I don't know, I say. Would I be dead? We learn things we didn't know before. That skin-to-skin -skin contact helps keep us warm. That SpaghettiOs and baked beans do mix. That too can fit on the shaky armchair. We're eating some meal. What it is, I don't know. We eat out of necessity. There's no such thing as breakfast, lunch, or dinner. It's all the same. It all tastes like shit. She's staring at me with those eyes of her. They demand an answer. I don't know, I say again. I see her being ripped from my car and tossed into the van, her hands bound and her eyes blindfolded. I hear her cry. I push my bowl away. I'm not hungry. I've lost my appetite. She stands and reaches for my bowl. She says she'll do the dishes tonight, but I gently clench her wrist when it comes within reach and say to her, leave it. We settle by the window where we watch the moon, the sliver in the sky. The clouds flicker by and sometimes we see the moon, sometimes we don't. Look at all the stars, she says. She knows the names of the constellations. Aries, Fornax, Perseus. She says that in Chicago she used to wish on airplanes because there were far more of those floating around in the night sky than stars. There are times she's too far away, even when she's in the same room. She teaches me to count to a hundred in Spanish. I teach her the foxtrot. When the lake freezes completely over, we ice fish. We never stay out long. She doesn't like to watch, so she walks on the lake as if Moses has parted the waters for her. She likes the newly fallen snow. Sometimes there are animal prints. Sometimes we hear snowmobiles in the distance. When she's frozen solid, she goes in. And then, I feel alone. I take her outside. I bring the gum with me. We walk through the woods for a while to a place so desolate I'm sure no one will hear the sound of a bullet exploding from the muzzle. I tell her that I want her to know how to shoot the gun. I give it to her flat, on both hands, like a piece of fine jewelry. She doesn't want to touch the damn thing. Take it, I say lightly. Why? she asks. Just in case. I want her to learn to shoot it so she can protect herself. That's what you're here for. What if one day I'm not? I ask. I tuck a strand of her hair behind a raw ear. I watch as the wind frees it again. It isn't loaded. She loops her thumb and forefinger through the trigger guard. She lifts it from my hands. It's heavy, the metal cold in the freezing temperatures. The ground is coated with snow. I place her finger on the trigger, wrap her palm around the grip. I move her thumb downward. I pull her left hand up to meet the right. My hand on hers assures her that she will be all right. 
that this will be all right. Her hands are cold like mine, but they come to me without reserve like they used to, pulling away when we touched. I tell her about the parts of the gun, the barrel and muzzle and trigger guard. I pull a magazine from the pocket of my jeans and show her how to attach it to the gun. I tell her about the kinds of guns there are, rifles and handguns and semi-automatics. This is a semi-automatic. When one round is fired, another round's loaded from the magazine into the chamber, all with the pull of the trigger. I tell her never to aim the gun at something she doesn't intend to kill. I learned this the hard way, I say, when I was seven, maybe eight, some kid in the neighborhood. His old man owned a gun. He used to brag about it all the fucking time. I called him a liar. He wanted to prove it to me, so we went to his house after school. No one was home. His dad kept the thing in a bedside table, unlocked and loaded. I grabbed it from the drawer like it was a toy. We played a round of cops and robbers. He was the cop, but I had the gun. The kid said, hands up, and I turned and shot him. And then we stand there in the freezing cold. We remember the time she stared down the barrel of the gun. There's guilt and sorrow. I'm sure she sees it in my eyes. I'm sure she can hear it in my voice when I say, I wouldn't have killed you. I'm clutching blindly to her hand. But you might have, she says. We both know it's the truth. Yeah, I admit. I'm not one to say I'm sorry, but I'm sure the look on my face says it all. But that was different, she says. How so, I ask. She lets me shadow her from behind. I raise her arms and legs together. We aim at a nearby tree. I part her legs and show her how to stand, and then we cock the hammer and pull the trigger. The sound is deafening. The release of the bullet nearly knocks her off her feet. Bark explodes from the tree. Because if I'd had the chance, I would have killed you too, she says. This is how we settle all those things that happened between us in the early days. This is how we make up for all the mean words that we said, for the horrible thoughts that ran through our minds. This is how we annul the violence and the hate of our first days and weeks in the cabin, inside the log walls that have now become our home. And your friend, she asks. I'm nodding to the gun in her hand. This time, I want her to try him by herself. Luckily for him, I had no aim when I was a kid. The bullet grazed the outside of his arm. A scratch. Eve. Christmas Eve. Gabe called early in the morning to tell me he was on his way. It was just after 5.30am when my cell phone rang, and unlike James, who slept like a baby, I'd been awake for hours, plagued by another sleepless night. I don't bother to wake him. I find my robe and slippers and step outside. There's news. I stand on the front step, shivering from the cold, waiting for Gabe's car to pull into our snow-covered drive. It's after six o'clock and still dark outside. Neighbor's Christmas decor lights the night sky, decorated trees glittering through bay windows, Icicle lights hanging from gutters, candles flickering in every single double-hung window that faces the street. From the chimneys, a cloud of smoke swirls into the frosty air. I pull my robe tight around me and wait. I hear a train in the distance, rumbling through town. No one waits beside its tracks before dawn on a Sunday morning, Christmas Eve. What is it, I ask, when he parks his car and climbs out? He comes right up to me. He doesn't shut the door. Let's go inside. He takes my hand and leads me where it's warm. We sit on the plush white sofa, pressed close together. We're hardly aware that our legs touch. It's dark in the house. Only the stove light in the kitchen is turned on. 
I don't want to wake, James. We whisper. There's a look in his eye. Something new. She's dead, I concede. No, he says. But then he revises his statement and, staring down into his own hands, humbly admits, I don't know. There's a doctor in a tiny town in northeastern Minnesota, a Dr. Kayla Lee. I didn't want to go and get your hopes up. We received a call a week or so ago. She saw Mia's picture on the news and recognized her as a patient. It had been weeks, maybe a month, since Mia was in. But she's sure it's her. Mia was using a pseudonym. Chloe Romaine. A doctor. Dr. Lee said that she was with a man, Colin Thatcher. She said that Mia was sick. Sick? Pneumonia. Pneumonia. Without treatment, pneumonia can lead to blood poisoning. It can lead to respiratory distress, the inability to breathe. Without treatment, a person can die. She was given a prescription and sent home. The doctor asked to see her back in a week. Mia never returned for the appointment. Gabe said he had a nagging feeling about this Grand Marais. Something in his gut told him she might be there. What made you think of Grand Marais, I asked, remembering the day he showed up at my home, asking if I'd ever heard of it. A postcard I came across at the Thatcher home, sent by Colin to his mother. For a boy who rarely left home, it caught my eye. A good place to hide. There's more, he says. What? I beg. She was given a prescription, but that doesn't mean it was ever filled. That doesn't mean the pills were ever taken. I've been talking to Catherine Thatcher and doing some research into the Thatcher family. Turns out there's a cabin up in Grand Marais that's been in the family for years. Catherine says she doesn't know much about it, she's never been there. But her ex brought Colin there when he was a boy. It's a summer home, so to speak, inhabited only for a few months of the year. I sent an officer to check on the home, and when he did, he found a red truck with Illinois plates parked outside. A red truck, I repeat. Gabe reminds me that Mrs. Thatcher's neighbors were sure Colin drove a truck. And? I ask anxiously. He stands to his feet. I'm on my way. Driving there this morning. I was going to take a flight, but there's no good way. No direct routes and between layovers and connections. I rise up to meet him. I'm coming. Let me peck a... I try to step past him. His hand sees me by the shoulders. You can't come, he says in a gentle voice. He says this is only a hunch. There's no proof. The home is under surveillance right now. He's not even certain that me is there. Colin Thatcher is a dangerous man, wanted for much more than this. I can, I cry. She's my daughter. Eve. My voice is uneven. My hands shake. I've waited for months for this moment, and now that it has arrived, I'm not certain I'm ready. There's so much that could go wrong. She needs me right now. I am her mother, Gabe. It's my duty to protect her. He embraces me, a burly bear hug. It's my duty to protect you he says. Trust me. If she's there, I will bring her home. I can't lose her now, I cry. My eyes stray to a family photograph we had done years ago. James, Grace, Mia, and me. Everyone else looks as if they were forced to be there, with artificial smiles, plastered, deferred brows, and rolling eyes. Even me. But Mia simply looks happy. Why? I wonder. We never gave her a reason to be happy. Gabe lowers his lips to my forehead and holds them there, pressed tightly against the creased skin. This is how we stand when James comes hobbling down the steps, dressed in a pair of tight-fitting tartan pants. What the hell is this? he demands. I'm the first to pull away. James, I say, hurrying to meet him in the foyer. They found Mia. But his eyes brush past me and he evades my greeting. And this is how you break the news? he challenges, deriding Gabe, 
by putting the moves on my wife? James, I say again, reaching for his hand so that he'll understand. Our daughter's coming home. They found Mia. But James replies with a patronizing look in Gabe's direction. He doesn't look at me. I'll believe it when I see it, he says, and walks out of the room. <laughs>